apologize. I was welcome to Caribbean Thought Lecture Seven. We're not. Um, we're waiting on the other students to arrive. But what we want to get into for this class today is we want to begin to we want to continue where we left off at the last class, which is to we want to explore the islands of the Caribbean briefly. Just compare them: uh, Martinique, Belize, Cuba, um, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Haiti. Quickly. We won't, we won't get into their scenarios and their struggles. Um, we, we will pick up from that later on, but um, we just want to quickly do a, a brief overview of the islands of the Caribbean. We won't look at all of them, but majority of them. Um, and then when we're finished with that, we, and by the way, we did, there was a, a quiz that you guys did last week um, in terms of what defines or set Cuba and Haiti apart from the other Caribbean, from, a, from Trinidad, Barbados, Guyana, and Jamaica. And uh, you guys came up with an answer, which majority of the class came up with the right answer, which was answer B. I want to finish, I want to, I want to delve, I want to take a deeper look, a deeper dive in, a deeper dive, a, de <laughs> a deeper dive a deeper dive delving into the dynamics of that particular quiz highlighting the disparities or the similarities of the islands um yes that's what i want to say quite poetic and then we want to finish that and then we want to get into garveyism black nationalism but we won't have time because next week next week is a break midterm break so what we will do next week we won't have a class. So I want my intention was to have you guys watch the Bob Marley movie, but we won't have time to watch it and also to watch Life and Death. And Who Shot the Sheriff? There's a lot of film to watch. But today the lecture is supposed to be, we go, we're supposed to segue into the topic for today, which is Garb looking at Garveyism, especially there is um Christian nationalism is trending on Twitter right now. And um, I made I responded to the um, I made a tweet about it earlier, um, looking at the, the difference between Garveyism or Garvey's or Garvey's nationalism with Padmore's nationalism, or Malcolm X brand of freedom and 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 rights and activism, Malcolm X as against Ma Ma um, Martin Luther King. Um, but any, but they were talking about Christian uh, Christian nationalism earlier today. Talking about Christian nationalism is a nationalism that speaks to an ideology, highlighting the fact that freedoms, freedoms, freedoms are derived not freedoms are derived from nothing that is external to the man, but from within himself in a sense. Or so we're actually not freedom, the freedom and the rights that people have is accorded to us because it coming from God. And I and I talk about the fact in the book Neoliberalism, Globalization, Human Equality, I talk about post-independent countries when we got independent, it was a putative. It, I mean we got it, we talk about granted freedoms and independence and countries that were countries that took their independence are suffering as against countries 
that were granted independence have a certain amount of freedom, but it is still one that is managed and mitigated by a neoliberal kind of globalization. But anyway, we want to look at Garveyism and black nationalism. Of course, one of the questions we ask, how effective is the civil rights movement? How effective is the global justice movement? How effective is Garveyism? How, how effective is the disnational movement towards freedom and independence and prosperity? What is nationalism? Of course, we want to define nationalism today. We want to look at Eli Kadori's book, um, Nationalism. Briefly looking at nationalism and highlighting the um, self-determinism or self-determination, which is an important concept or component of nationalism. And of course, when you start talking about black nationalism, you start thinking about liberation theology but or black liberation theology. And as theologians, you want to ask yourself, I mean, is there a clash? Is there a, is, is there a conflict between a kind of nationalism, a kind of, uh, a kind of pursuit towards independence and freedom which means then you will have to challenge the status quo or certain conservative or traditional values. And then of course you will argue that, well, that's why some, that's, that, that's what has created some of the slow progress and change in part of the Caribbean because of course, and of course the study that I'm asking you to, to do, the, the attitudes towards Afro-Caribbean beliefs, attitudes towards Rastafarianism. Rastafarianism started in the 1930s. This movement towards uh, uh, response to to response to the simply to the to the unrest and the uh, and the economic uh, plight and the poverty, rising inequality in the nineteen thirties and the unrest in the nineteen thirties, leading uh, leading to this populist drive towards nationalism and independence and so on and so forth. But Rastafarianism and some of the Afro-Caribbean belief is a response to colonialism and domination. But this domination and colonialism, this domin this kind of thrust this is a, it's against eurocentric ideas which is embedded in in caribbean freedoms and inherited countries part of our dogmas and our rules today and we ourselves look down upon the very same thing but anyway we want to talk about garbageism and black nationalism but of course we want to define nationalism as a nationalism we talk about nationalism you have to think about independence um, but we want to talk about garbageism, black nationalism, and neoliberal globalization. But as again, I said, neoliberalism, neoliberal globalization didn't start until about the 1960s or sorry, more so the 70s and the 80s. Moving into the 90s and the 2000s, especially in the 1990s, the rise of the the big corporation, the rise of the co the corporation, the multinationals and the transnational and multinationalism and transnationalism is part of the con is part of what neoliberal globalization promoted. The ability of companies in post-industrial countries to do business all over the world and to build large conglomerates and corporations extending all over the world and penetrating and dominating markets, creating monopolies. Dominating markets, penetrating markets, and part of neoliberal globalization or globalization was to create rules and or create that uh, well led to the creation of association and organizations that that promoted free trade and where countries have to you know liberalize and break down barriers to free trade and globalization which in effect smaller countries 
where once you break down barriers, this penetration is easy and you can it's difficult for you to compete. But anyway, we won't, as I said to you, we won't we may not be able to get into neoliberal globalization um today. Because by the time we get into exploring the island of the Caribbean, and by the time we get into Gaviism and black nationalism, we may not have time to delve into neoliberal globalization, which we'll have to wait until week after next or something of the sort. But coupled with looking at neoliberal globalization, a global, what globalization is and how it has affected the global South and the Caribbean, involves, yes, looking at um, a film, Life and Death, which we will consider. The, the first film we want to consider is Life and Death. I really want to have to, I really want us to watch Life and Death because it will open your eyes to a lot of things. It will really set the stage and now start really mushrooming some of the ideas that we've been talking about in a very powerful and powerful way. I find film quite powerful. I find that whenever I teach this class, the first weeks, um, it takes a while for the students to start grappling with some of the, ter the tense concepts of the course and the complexity of it. But as we as the, as we, we constantly bombard you with the same concepts over through many of it, through the through the through the progress and the journeys that we go through and then we start and then we and then i start showing the movie like shift life and death who shot the sheriff and then having discussions about it and so on then you start to that's when you really start the concept start will start to hit home to you guys so i'm looking forward to have you guys watching that film and have an, an opportunity to discuss it with you because i think it will be really profound as it was for me when I watched it the first time here in the US under the tutelage of Rita Bernard who wrote Nelson Mandela's memoir, who was the editor, and uh, Rita Bernard, the English professor at the University of Penn, who was teaching cinema and globalization and I had an opportunity to watch Life and Death, which really opened up my eyes about a lot of things. But we'll get a, an opportunity to watch that next in terms of the film that we will watch as we move into neoliberal, discussing neoliberal globalization. But um, we will begin, uh, as we begin, we would, um, I usually like to, that's the preface. I like to always preface class by doing that. But before, so um, it's now, I don't know what time it is. What time is it? Um, it is now, let me see. It's 3.27. Um, I will begin the lecture in about three or five minutes, officially, um, beginning by looking at Nash, um, looking, well, looking at this concept of nationalism, where I'm not sure yet whether we're going to look at nationalism or I'm going to continue with what we were doing last week. Actually, we'll continue what we were doing last week and then we'll move into the concept of nationalism and quickly touch on this idea of Christian nationalism as against nationalism and, um, and, uh, and then look at Eli Kodori's book, Nationalism, how she he defines nationalism and um we'll delve into that quickly all right so we will we will start momentarily
All right, we'll begin, um, we will begin the lecture. Uh, we said we want to pick up from where we left off last week, but some, um, earlier today, there was, an, there was something trending um, on Twitter. I don't know if you guys get a chance. Let me see if I could bring it up quickly, which I found it quite interesting. Um, let me bring this, which I want to share with you guys. Let me see if I could find it. Um, Christian nationalist. Christian nationalist was trending on Twitter today, and uh, I was, and I wanted to uh, actually share a quick bite. joins us now live. Mackenzie, you sat down with the executive director of the Rainbow Youth Project. What can you tell us? Yeah, well, typically the Rainbow Youth Project reports handling about 87 calls from Oklahoma per week, but within just... All right, actually, I'm trying to find... Um... All right, here we go. But anyways, there is... Um... Uh, it's Christian nationalist is trending on social media. It says, you're a Christian nationalist if I guess... You're a Christian nationalist if, I guess, I've been a Christian nationalist from way back, even though I've not embraced that label. Who's a Christian nationalist? Um, I'm not sure who a Christian nationalist is. Um, but according to what's trending on social media, I'm going to bring it up here shortly for you guys. You're a Christian nationalist if, I guess, I've been a Christian nationalist from way back, even though I've not embraced that label several times a year, I remind our congregation that all of our rights and freedoms are gifts of God. Here is the crux of the matter. All I'm I'm reading a uh, a tweet from a uh, from Howell Scott. Um, Howell Scott is a Christian conservative pastor, former lawyer, um, Florida native. Um, but he's talking about Christian nationalists. He said that even though I've not embraced that, that label seven times a year, I remind our congregation that all of our rights and freedoms are gifts of God. Gifts of God. All our rights and freedoms are gifts of God. And, you know, I've oftentimes talked about the issue of, and it's, so, it's quite interesting that I'm about to pick up from where we left off last week. And I asked the question, what, di what differentiates or what separates Haiti and Cuba? from other Caribbean islands on the issue of, but it is on the issue of their nationalism and how they realized or achieved or got their nationalism or their independence. So, the, so you know, um, I talk about, I've, all, I've oftentimes said to my students in this class, you, you can learn, learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. Learning, it doesn't happen Learning does not happen in a vacuum. I've oftentimes said that. And that is very important in terms of how um, learning is done today. You have, to, you have to look at, you have to relate it back to society, what's happening today. And I oftentimes say to students, break, uh, what, what's going on in society so that, that you can relate back to your class, which is important. So... I was actually looking at what's going on in the world and I saw that this issue of Christian nationalists was trending. 
and this Christian pastor wrote that I've, he has been a Christian nationalist from way back, even though I've not embraced that label. The importance of label is important. He said, even though I have not embraced that label, because once you label me, you negate me. The issue of label is important. Embracing a concept is good, but in one end, it's bad. As I said, culture is good in one sense, but culture is also bad in another sense. Nationalism is good in one sense, but also bad in, it's bad in another sense. And of course, you can understand why we are saying that. Okay. So although he's saying that I embrace Christian nationalism from way back, I don't embrace that label. I don't want to be considered a Christian a Christian nationalist outside of anything else because you get who you are and your ideas get lost because sometimes you might be you might um, it's, you might be a little bit different from a Christian nationalist from but anyways but he says several times a year I remind our congregation that all of our rights and freedoms are gifts of God that's what a, a Christian nationalist Christian nationalists believe that people's rights and freedoms are gifts of God not grants of the government, state or federal. So I guess I, I could be branded a Christian nationalist because I've oftentimes, and even in the book Neoliberalism and in the new book coming out and what I have promoted and what I teach, and as post-colonialists, maybe we are Christian nationalists. But I've oftentimes said that and I've oftentimes challenged the independence of many post-independent countries because the kind of independence and freedoms, say, for example, we think about the civil rights, when you think about the, the emancipation and the freedom, it, the emancipation was an act, <laughs> okay? It's an act. Emancipation is an act. Um, and independence, is, they have, and they have elaborate ceremonies mark granting freedoms and so on and so forth. But I've oftentimes said, okay, some people, but, but then you have to be careful about this, the, uh, the narrative when people say that all of, all, of our, our, all of our rights and freedoms are gifts of God, not grants. Who are they talking about? Black people, brown people, or Anglo-Saxon people? Whenever black and brown people fight for their freedom and independence, that's a problem. But when other kind of people do it, say, for example, the American Revolution, Amer okay, after the Americans got their independence, their independence was recognized. Their new nation was recognized, but the Haitians, their nation wasn't recognized. In fact, they were ordered to pay a debt. Did, they, did America pay a debt? We don't know about that. Some people can point to what's going on in the world today. Russia fighting Ukraine or invading Ukraine as against um, the Palestinians and the fight between Israel and Hamas and so on and so forth. I will let you be the judge of that. But even though, anyway, let's continue with the narrative as it relates to Christian nationalists. Even though I've not embraced that label several times a year, I remind our congregation that all our rights and freedoms are gifts of God, not grants of the government. And by that, he means state or federal. Therefore, the government, regardless of the branch or the means, can never take away those rights or freedoms. 
That doesn't mean that they won't try. And they have tried. We see that happening all the time. The attacks on biblical Christianity are only in their infancy here in the U.S. They can and will get much worse, so on and so forth. That was um, somebody responding to, to an issue. But, um, um, but that's quite interesting. Um, and then, of course, there was, I want to play this, this particular, this this conversation that is someone is that they believe i want to play a conversation that someone was having about christian nationalism for you as well so let me stop sharing my screen and go back to uh share again and where is it is it this yes and share okay um and let me share the sound as well uh share sound listen to this guys one thing that unites all of them, because there's many different groups orbiting Trump, but the thing that unites them as Christian nationalists, not Christians, by the way, because Christian nationalists is very different, mm -hmm. is that they believe that our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. The, the one thing that unites all of them, because there's many um, different groups orbiting Trump. Okay, then. they're talking about trump the u.s in the u.s and the people who support trump are calling themselves christian nationalists believing that the authority don't come from congress but it comes from god now as critical thinkers that could be a dangerous statement because when you think about nationalism the people who support trump you know what happened on january 6th many of them tried to launch an insurrection and to overturn the election results. Um, in their defense, they're calling themselves Christian nationalists, saying that, and their authority to do that, it doesn't come from man, or it doesn't come from, it. okay, in fact, yes, they violated section three of the 14th amendment, but section three of the 14th amendment is man's law, okay? They defy that because you know what Trump's man's law? God's law. So they're saying that their, their action, the action of people in a democracy to challenge their democracy through an insurrection comes from God. So, you know, I said nationalism is good in one sense, but in another sense, it can be bad. And you know what? Eli Kadori points to that in his book, Nationalism. The idea that nationalism is based on a people who have, who ascribe to a certain law and establish a system in place. But what if another group challenge that system with another law <laughs> it's quite interesting what if that and so therefore I, I argue the point you know what will upend society and our progress is our propensity to think in categories and classes and the idea of having nationalism the nationalism in some is good but in another sense it's bad because it may promote categories and classes who continue to promote certain privileges 
and, and special interest, thinking that their ideals is better than the ideas of the other group. It's, it's quite interesting. We're going to talk about nationalism a little bit today. Okay? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. But, um, but we won't, we're going to stop here quickly and, uh, because this is quite interesting. But the idea of nationalism speaks to the issue of rights and freedom, individual liberties, um, states' rights and, um, and sovereignty, the issue of sovereignty. Nationalism, nationalism, and I actually quickly wrote something for you guys today that, as we start to talk about Christian nationalism. So if Christian nationalism are people who believe and think that their freedom and their, their, their ability to act freely and their freedom comes from God, Nothing is stopping anyone then from you from pointing to such ideal to promote insurrection. Then you have to well, but that but when you look at when you study black nationalism, that is exactly what black liberation theology and black nationalists point to. They point to some they point to the divine. We're gonna we're gonna get into that in a minute. But what is nationalism though? Nationalism promotes promotes the idea of free and independent peoples, states, nations, devoid of control or colonialism. Let me say that again. Nationalism promoted the idea of free and independent peoples, states, nations, devoid of control or colonialism. Or we call that co colonialism. Or, okay. It promotes the ideals of national rights and states' sovereignty. Um, I, I usually talked, I think at one point I mentioned to you guys uh, the Bandung Conference in 1955, I think it was held, where non-aligned countries and um, the, the book, I believe it's um, In the Wretched of the Earth, uh, In the Wretched of the Earth, um, French Fanon, in fact, not really French Fanon, but in the preface, Omi Baba and I think it's uh, who was it as, as well? It's Omi Baba and and Richard Philcox talks about the Bandung Conference, and uh, probably I should bring it up. I think and I I think I raised it at the last. I think I may have raised it at the the last class. Um, I, I want to see if I, um, but in, I talk about 19, I think it's in 1955, they had the Bandung Conference. Again, many people don't know about the Bandung Conference. The Bandung Conference is where third world, well, I'm, I don't use the word third world, but uh, let me read this particular statement here in the book, Wretched of the Earth. And I said this in the last class. It must be ironic, even absurd at first, to search for associations and intersection between colonization and globalization when decolonization had the dream of a third world of free post-colonial nations firmly on its horizon, whereas globalization gazes at the nation through the backwaters. But um, that's not what I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find the page that speaks to the Bandon Conference in 1955. Um, but I don't see it. Uh, I, um, I, don't remember, I don't remember where I saw it. But in 1955, they had the Bandon Conference and all the um, former colonized countries come together um, to advocate and to, 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 
to draft up a plan and to dream up of uh, a plan for their independence and so on and so forth. Um, that I think that at the same time we were transitioning from thinking about uh, West Indian Federation to I guess an indi independent Caribbean islands. But in 1955, they were just drive towards the nation, free, independent, third world, as they use it then, it's, we don't use that now, nations um, that were non-aligned. But the issue of nationalism is quite front and center in Caribbean thought and the fact that people are having a conversation about nationalism and Christian nationalists. But then I even went further earlier today to talk about what the Bandung Conference in 1955 was where so former countries that were colonized, seek, look, seeking independence, came together to, to have a conference to talk about the independence and to explore plans for the independence. At the same time, in the 1950s, you have the Algerian War of, uh, for Liberation and Freedom. Um, it's quite interesting. So when you think about nationalism, you're, you're still, the idea of freedom the, the idea of freedom is important. Nationalism drives home the idea of freedom, but then freedom, then you have to ask what type of freedom or the ways of realizing freedom. Um, we think about violence, but what kind of violence? I'm oftentimes, I'm against violence that destroys edifices, um, but I believe a kind of violence of strategy. But I, we won't get into that right now. But when you think about nationalism, nationalism promotes freedom. Um, and when you think about the words that comes to mind when you think about freedom is emancipation. Say, for example, when slavery was, uh, well, slave, the Emancipation Act of 1833 in the West Indian or the British Caribbean, uh, where that, that freed all slaves and Okay, so an act of parliament freed us. But here we're talking, here we're talking about Christian nationalists challenged, challenges this act of, of parliament. So yes, fine. While there is an while we have an act of parliament that freed slaves, no act of parliament can re-enslave man, men, or any man for that matter. But what differentiates some men from other men in this Western, in the Western hemisphere, that some men are inherently free while other men were granted freedoms, whatever, however you see it. And when you talk about our freedoms, then you have to delve in. When you say our, who are you talking about? Because some people, the word our doesn't extend to all peoples, only some peoples. But anyways, but the idea of freedom and, um, extends to the idea of emancipation. And and abolishment, because abolishment never the abolishment the abolishment of slavery never occurred. We talk about emancipation and abolishment because although slaves were freed in 1833, the Emancipation Act never got to certain parts of the Caribbean until 1865. So then again, so slaves were working the plantations as enslaved peoples, yet they were free. So the question is, were they free? Were they paid? From 1833 to 1865, when the slaves were working the plantation, they weren't aware of their freedom, but yet they were free. So all that time when they were working, once they were, an once the announcement got to them that they were free, 
and they left the plantation. Were they compensated for the work that they provided on these plantations from 1833 to 1865? And I have written an article about that as well, talking about that, 1833 to 1865. No, they were not paid. So then the idea of repatriation comes into play. And just so you know, when the slaves were freed, when, slave, when the slaves were freed in 1865, in 1833, but and eventually when they left in 1865, many plantation owners were compensated. They were insured against loss of property. So they were compensated, but the slaves weren't compensated. And when people talk about repatriation, they say, oh, it can't be done. But it can be done. But anyway, we won't talk about how it can be done. But we're saying that, yet there were, I understand that there were some elites in Jamaica and many Caribbean islands that were paid lump sum of money. Some of them were even black people who had slaves and plantations. Some of them had plantations. Some black people had plantations with black people working on some of these places. Some of, you had some black and brown elites who were paid um, insurance money. Did, um, did they, was this money shared with some of the slaves who also worked because slaves worked the plantation anyways. But the idea of nationalism speaks to the idea of freedom. Freedom um, speaks to the idea of, of emancipation and abolishment. The idea of independence, because, because all those slaves were freed in the West Indies and uh, um, following the emancipation and then the abolish, um, abolishment, they were still treated as second-class citizens living in a country that was predominantly of their own race, black and brown peoples, but it was still a, col a colony of the external. So they were still, the peoples were free, but, but yet they were not, the country weren't, they, they were, and the country was not free in terms of they were still under the control of the external. So then the issue of independence, or the issue of the nation. And many nations got in, and the kind of independence that you want. Um, because then independence, talk, we talk about independence. Um, independence speak to the nation. Because you talk about an independent nation, a nation with your own laws, with your own rules. Uh, when you talk about uh, uh, your own nation, uh, with your own governance, with your own policies, with, okay, a governance with your own political system, your own traditions, not that, I mean, so that's what we're talking about, where you have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So it wasn't until 1960 that many countries... Uh, countries were guaranteed that. And then, of course, in the, in the Americas, we talk about, in the U.S., we talk about civil rights. It wasn't until the 1960s as well that American Black people got civil rights. So although American, um, following the Ameri um, although many American slaves were freed, they never got civil rights until the 1960s. So then when you talk about nationalism, you also talk about um, the issue of civil rights.
when you talk, um, by the way, uh, we talk about comparing nationalism. There are some prominent figures that you have to think about. Um, today, we, I think it's Martin, we recently are, we are celebrating Martin Luther King Day or something like that. Um, and we must, people always compare Malcolm X with Martin Luther King. And in a sense, Garvey, Ma, uh, Marcus Garvey influen well, influenced Martin Luther King. But he didn't really influence um, Malcolm X in a sense, but in a sense he did. But more so, I think it was George Padmore that influenced Malcolm X. Because when you start to look at nationalism, you have different kind of nationalism. Say, for example, you might say, I, I will say to you, and if you read the book Neoliberalism, which is our textbook, the second part of the book looks at um, the limitations of Garveyism and black nationalism. I think that's chapter nine. But I draw a comparison between Marcus Garvey's nationalism and Padmore's Garveyism, Martin Luther as against Malcolm X. Uh, Marcus Garvey's nationalism still promotes, in a sense, and still promoted a kind of white imperialism, a white imperialist form of, 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 of the nation, of this black, black nationalism. Um, they still promoted a kind or a white imperialism that promoted a kind of black supremacy uh black supremacy but but black but actually i should not say black supremacy because they never they never look they never promoted a kind of black supremacy in a sense over and against uh, other because because then but in a sense they did promote a kind of black supremacy more so garvey um, or a kind of imperialism, and especially when you start to look at some of the pictures and images and caricatures of Marcus Garvey in the 40s and so on, you will see him or 30s, see him riding in buggies and carts and wearing felt hats. You could clearly see European and imperialist influence on him when you start to look at the images and, and what he wears and so on and so forth. So that, so. Garvey, Marcus Garvey had a and and Marcus and and art and to an extent Martin Luther King Jr. Um, their their kind of nationalism, their kind of civil rights and freedom was one that still was influenced by Eurocentric a conservative brand of nationalism, or one that was Christian, as against Padmore and Malcolm X that promoted in a sense, communistic or socialistic or humanist or anti-Christian, Malcolm X had um, promoted a, a kind of um, the, uh, the nation of Islam, the nation, the na you notice the nation within, the nation within the nation. But, but uh, Marcus Garvey, in a sense, was also talking about the nation within the nation as well. So in a sense, Malcolm X draw influence from, Mar from Marcus Garvey, who was also talking about uh, a kind of black nation, but of course he had started the the Black Star shipping line, taking people back to Africa, and and Marcus Garvey actually was successful in getting people taking people back to Africa. In fact, uh, many of many um, Americans and Caribbean people and Jamaicans who have businesses in Ghana today and live in Ghana today have successful business. In fact, many um, I think uh, many in many places in Africa, Jamaicans are welcome, but in Ghana. Have a very strong Jamaican influence and population there, even today. Um, and many of that stem had started from the, the Black Star shipping line or this 
Africa to African movement and drive. Let me stop sharing my screen. Why am I sharing this lady? Okay, sorry about that, guys. Um, so that is important to note. When you, especially, so when you start to compare the um, uh, nationalism, uh, but let's we're gonna take we're gonna take a break from that because I want to go. I want to continue pick up with this idea of nationalism some more, talking about the limitations of Garveyism and black nationalism um, in a in a but in a couple of minutes because I want to go back to looking at. Um, come back to where we left last class talking about what it is that defines or differentiates Cuba and Haiti's um, Cuba and Haiti from the other Caribbean islands and what defines the um, these two islands from the others is an issue of what I call the paradox of sovereignty and the issue of sovereignty speaks to the issue speaks to the overall theme of nationalism nationalism so in a sense this is quite interesting it's it's quite it's a good flow here um it's a good segue so as we look at what differentiates the islands of the caribbean and particularly in terms of the issue of sovereignty and granted freedoms as again taken as against taken freedoms moving into the idea of nationalism It will, it it is a it's it, it will actually create a great opportunity for us to now delve into the issue of what separates these islands, and and the kind of independence that that these countries have. So we're going to delve into it now. We're going to compare the islands of the Caribbean and delve into the lecture, looking at the um, the paradox of freedom, picking up from where we left off last week. Okay, I'm going to actually share my screen. I'm going to stop sharing this particular screen. Let me stop sharing this. Hold up. Oh, I'm not sharing my screen. So let me share my screen and get into this real quickly. I don't know if all of you had participated in the poll, but I think we had started this last week. Um, there we go. Let me minimize this. But last week we had started... We started this. The paradox of sovereignty. Cuba and Haiti's struggle for freedom and the challenge of development. And I, I asked the question, what do Haiti and Cuba not have in common with Dominica Republic, Jamaica, Trinidad and Barbados? And of course, um, I, um, the options, these weren't the options. But the keys were poorest in the world, black and brown peoples, granted freedoms, taken freedoms, embargoes and shaky diplomacy and international relations, debt, dependency and non-competitiveness, formerly colonized, formerly colonized peoples. And of course, the options were A, 2, 5, 6 and 7, B, 1, 4 and 5, C, 1 only, and 1 and 3 only, D, 3 and 4 only. Um, and I think I don't, I can't see what's up there. One, three, and four only. I think, and the answer was B. One, four, and five. Um, and so and we already so we looked at this last week. But I said today I want to delve as we move into the issue of Garveyism and black nationalism and neoliberal globalization. I want and the issue of the paradox of sovereignty. I want to take a deeper look. I want to take a deeper look at this. 
taking freedoms um, and mixed results. And I said in the, in, the, in, in the response that in the mosaic of the Caribbean, two nations, Cuba and Haiti, stand out, not only for their vibrant cultures and tumultuous histories, but also for the unique parts they traversed in their quests for freedom and independence. Now, while their counterparts, while their counterparts, and by their, while Haiti's and Cuba's counterparts, including the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, attained their freedoms through colonial concessions, Cuba and Haiti defiantly seized their destinies, forging independent nations amid the crucible of revolution and resistance. However, the seemingly notable act of self-liberation has been fraught with profound challenges, perpetuating a paradox wherein the pursuit of sovereignty has engendered poverty, instability, and diplomatic isolation on the world stage. Diplomatic isolation on the world stage. Cuba and Haiti's decision to take their freedoms into their own hands, eschewing the shackles of colonial rule is emblematic or emblematic of their fierce determination to chart autonomous development trajectories. Haiti's groundbreaking revolution in 1804 shattered the change of slavery, establishing the world's first black republic and inspiring peoples globally to aspire for liberation. Now, similarly, similarly, Cuba's revolution or revolutionary struggle in the 20th century, culminating in Fidel Castro's ascent to power in 1959, heralded a new era of socialist government and nationalism. However, the euphoria of liberation soon collided with the harsh realities of post-colonial existence as both nations grappled with the enduring legacies of exploitation, underdevelopment, and external interference. Despite their fervent aspirations for self-determination, Cuba and Haiti found themselves ensnared in a web of poverty, instability, and diplomatic isolation that has persisted to the present day. Now, the economic ramifications of their revolutionary choices have been particularly pronounced, with Cuba and Haiti languishing among the poorest nations in the world, plagued by endemic poverty, underdevelopment, and economic stagnation. Now, the absence of a robust international diplomacy and relations on the world stage has exacerbated their predicament relegating them to the periphery of global affairs and limiting their capacity to harness international support and investment for sustainable development. Moreover, moreover, the imposition of embargoes, sanctions, and diplomatic isolation 
has further compounded their challenges, exacerbating economic hardship and perpetuating cycles of dependency on external aid and support. Now that has not that's not only that that's not only the situation for Haiti and Cuba. But as it but the, the diplomatic isolation, the diplomatic isolation is the part that is important. The imposition of embargoes, sanctions and diplomatic isolation. Because none of the other islands have embargoes, sanctions and diplomatic isolation. But Cuba and Haiti, um, they have that, which has further comp compounded their challenges, exacerbating economic hardship and perpetuating cycles of dependency on external aid and support. So while their counterparts in the Caribbean have leveraged international partnerships and diplomatic relations to bolster their economies, their economies and enhance their global standing, Cuba and Haiti have found themselves marginalized and well, marginalized on the world stage, grappling with the consequences of their defiant pursuit of sovereignty. Now, I have said in the conclusion that the paradox of sovereignty confronting Cuba and Haiti underscores the complex interplay between freedom, one, development and diplomacy in the, well, freedom one and development and diplomacy two in the, in the Caribbean context. While their decisions to take their freedoms and independence have been laudable expressions of self-determination, self-determination is an important concept in nationalism, which we will, which we are about to visit in a couple of minutes. While the, their decision to take their freedoms, Haiti and Cuba's decision to take their freedoms and independence have been laudable expressions of self-determination, the resultant challenges of poverty, instability, and diplomatic isolation highlight the enduring legacies of colonialism and the formidable obstacles of post-colonial development. I'm going to say this again. This is quite powerful and it is important. I said, in conclusion, the paradox of sovereignty, the paradox of sovereignty, and the paradox of sovereignty is quite broad. The paradox of sovereignty is, does not only involve confronting, con, does not, the paradox of sovereignty does not only involve confronting Cuba and Haiti's on Cuba and Haiti, does not in, only involve confronting Cuba and Haiti on underscoring the con complex interplay between freedom development and diplomacy in the Caribbean context. But it also involves several other factors that we must consider. But this one is quite paramount. The paradox of sovereignty confronting Cuba and Haiti underscores the complex interplay between freedom, development, and diplomacy in the Caribbean context. But it goes beyond that because it goes to the, it speaks to also the issue of identity. Okay, the issue of cosmopolitanism, which we hope to delve, which we hope, I hope I have time to delve into that for the, in this class, if we may not, but if we do, that would be great. Okay, the issue of cosmopolitanism, in terms of who is the cosmopolitan? What must he be? The, the cosmopolitan like myself, the cosmopolitan like Omi Baba, those who 
ano, living in the diaspora. The cosmopolitan. The paradox of sovereignty confronting Cuba and Haiti. Or the paradox of sovereignty. It also challenges in, in the individual. The individual. And I'm going to talk about it in a second because I want to, I want to raise a, a side issue, but it relates to a larger issue of the, the paradox of sovereignty. Or, okay. But anyways, the, the conclusion is that the paradox of sovereignty confronting Cuba and Haiti underscores the complex of interplay between the complex interplay between freedom, development, and diplomacy in the Caribbean context. Now, while their decisions to take freedoms and independ independence have been laudable expressions of self-determination, the resultant challenges of poverty, instability, and diplomatic isolation highlight the enduring legacies of colonialism and the formidable obstacles to post-colonial development. Now, as the Caribbean navigates the complexities of the 21st century, the experiences of Cuba and Haiti serve as poignant reminders of the enduring struggle for sovereignty and the imperative of confronting the structural inequities that continue to shape the region's trajectory. Because, and I said, only through collective action and solidarity, only through collective action and solidarity, can the Caribbean overcome the paradoxes of sovereignty and forge a path towards inclusivity and diversity for all its peoples. Collective action is important. And I believe, as I said to you, I'm going to say it again, I believe that when we were discussing become, uh, the, uh, the West Indian Federation, that kind of collective action that we were discussing, that was the kind of collective action that we need. A broader nationalism beyond, beyond, independent, beyond independent nation states to one that is more cooperative nation states. But anyways, so that is um, that is for that is for that in terms of looking at uh, the paradox of sovereignty or the paradox of independence, looking at nationalism. Okay, any questions so far? We're gonna take a quick break, and um, we're gonna come back at four twenty-five. And when we come back at four twenty-five, we want to continue looking at nationalism, and um, we're gonna delve quick briefly into Eli Kadori's book, Nationalism looking at um, what nationalism is briefly and highlighting some very important concepts from the book, uh, from Eli Kadori's book, Nationalism, okay? So, um, but if you have any questions, um, please let me hear them. But if not, we'll take a quick five minutes break. We, we'll, well, actually we'll take a break, we'll come back at 4.30, okay? And we will move into um, Eli Kadori's book, Nationalism, quickly, just start lifting up, talking about nationalism, and then we transition into our main text, looking at the limitations of Garveyism and, and black nationalism and, and segueing into neoliberal globalization. Okay? All right, so if there's no question, we'll take a break. We come back at 4.30. I'm, uh, 
we talk about what distinguishes Haiti and Cuba from the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Barbados. But I want to provide a, an, a brief synopsis on, or overview of these islands. Their socio-political economy, religions, demographics, and histories, and their current position today. Um, just briefly, uh, first of all, Haiti, the, the socio-political economy of Haiti, that Haiti is one of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and um, with a struggling economy, primarily based on agriculture, particularly subsistence farming, and um, it faces challenges. Actually, before I get into this, did you guys, did I ask you guys last week to identify a Caribbean island and to provide a brief synopsis of these islands, their socio-political economy, religion, demographics and histories and their current position today. Did I ask you guys to do that last week? Yes, sir. I just remembered. Did you guys, what did you guys come up with? I was just about to delve into to them. But before I do that, um, let me see what you guys come up with. Um, but with, what did you guys do? Who wants to, uh, what did you guys do? Anybody? Did you guys do it? I I did it. I, I don't know that the information necessarily covers everything. That's fine. That's fine. Just yeah. over. Just um, it's okay. Just I would love for I wanted to you guys to begin to um familiarizing yourself with the other Caribbean islands. So whatever you have, that's that, and the fact that you're able to do it, that's great. And I would love to see what slant you take and the perspectives that you were able to gather concerning these the, the island you chose. With what island you chose? I did Trinidad and Tobago. Okay, all right. Um, tell me a bit about Trinidad and Tobago. What did you gather about Trinidad? Okay, so in terms of their population, in terms of ethnicity, yes. it's dominated primarily by two groups. And what I found out that I didn't know before is that the, the, the difference in the two groups is almost equal. Mm. Um, so it would be those descended from those who were slaves in Africa. Yes. And then also the indians who came as indentured laborers but what is interesting is that it was very specific about the indians it was east indians so that was the specific um information not sure what that means in terms of them saying east um, but the indians that came as indentured laborers were from the east it makes me wonder um if those were the darker indians who would have been considered as the quote-unquote, bottom of their caste system, but I didn't look into it any further. But it did. Well, it yeah, a lot of the, a lot, yeah, well, you are, uh, okay. Well, to say that they came from East India, that's necessarily, um, they were East Indian, that's necessarily mean that came, they came from the Eastern part of India. It oh. necessarily means then, because when Christopher Columbus and the Europeans came, they were looking for, they were actually looking for India, like East India. But they ended up in the West Indies, and so we are called, in a West sense, Indian. we were in a sense, called we are West Indians. Right. So the East Indians, in a sense, would be the people from in from India. Ah, uh, division now. Yes, I yes, yes. Now. However, you have pointed out something quite important in uh, I mean, in terms of in in um, fleshing that out. Even though um, you are a little bit like, oh, it's fine because you are still onto something important because that is important. Okay. Um, 
the indentured labor, yeah, sorry, the indentured servants or laborers who came from East India or from India mm-hmm. to the Caribbean and or or Trinidad. A lot of them came to Trinidad, in fact, more than anywhere else. Other than went to Trinidad, but Trinidad is it's still smaller than Jamaica. Right. But a lot went to Trinidad, and yes, many of the. Then you asked about what the type of the population who were these indentured laborers, because you know India they had a caste system. Right. Yes, many of them came. Many of them were dark Indians. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right, and many of them came from the lower caste, in a sense. Um, so yes, you are right to have pointed that out. So yeah, the population is diverse, but significant. Indo-Trinidadian and Afro-Trinidadian yes. population. That's yeah. what it says. It says Indo-Trinidadian. Yes, <laughs> alongside a smaller, smaller community of European right. and Middle Eastern descent. Yeah, right. So it says that the the indentured laborers that came, they actually worked on the plantations after the abolition of slavery in the mid nineteenth yeah. century, and as you had alluded to that there is that third group but what is interesting is that it didn't say third it didn't say it didn't refer to them as the third group minority it referred to them as the slightly smaller third group yes they were so, small, definitely so it's it's as if it's almost for me how i interpret that is that it's possibly an even spread in terms of european those of european descent versus african versus indian um, and it says that they were of mixed mixed ethnicity. So it includes migrants from Spain, other European countries, um, Africa, as we know, East and Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. I wasn't expecting to hear Middle East, but let's oh, yes, yes. And in terms of their religious breakdown, um, they said that the country is 32.1% Protestant, 21.6% Roman Catholic. 18.2% Hindu, 4.9% Muslim, 1.5% Jehovah's Witness, 2.2% non-religious. And interestingly, it says there the other or unknown religious practices that are there make up 19.5%. I found that part to be very shocking. And in terms of their population... Wait, hold up. Oh, you said... So, so okay, so hold up. Let me say that again. <laughs> Which um, part me, you want me to say again, sir? Give me the uh the popul- uh, the breakdown of the religion. Okay. Start? I'm gonna start now. Yes. Okay, so for the Protestants, it's 32.1%. Okay. Roman Catholics make up 21.6%. Okay. The Hindus make up 18.2%. Okay. The Muslims make up 4.9%. Jehovah's Witnesses are 1.5%. Okay. The non-religious are 2.2%. Okay. And the shocking one, which says other religions or unknown religions make up 19.5%. Other religions, 19. What's this other religions? Or it didn't other- it didn't give a breakdown. This is this is what the data showed it, but it didn't like 
it didn't include like what the others could be. I am wondering if it would have been, um, if it has anything to do with those that would have come in like through slavery, like Santeria and those. I wonder if it's if it's those practices, but it didn't clarify, so I didn't I didn't go any further with it. That's interesting. Because, okay, the reason why you're able to, that mm -hmm. I like how you were. Oh, I like how you. I like your analysis. How you are able. You're, how you are analyzing here. You're saying, well, oh, maybe these are. That means you're you're about to talk to us about the demographics. So maybe you're you're able to talk about the. So that's you're, well, you're, you said the Santeria. Where did yeah. you Where did you get that from? I didn't. It was just like general knowledge, like what you learn in school, <laughs> like in terms of um, the the fact that there are practices that still would have remained um, more more or less under the quiet, but what the the Africans would have taken with them and held fast to that have become different things like Pocomania and Santeria and Voodoo and those things. Yeah. So I was just wondering if that if that is what the other represents. Well, you well yes, you're right. Um, you are right. The religion of Trinidad they are diverse with Hinduism, mm -hmm. Christianity, Islam, okay. and Islam being the major religions alongside the smaller communities practicing Afro Caribbean religions. The Afro Caribbean religions would be probably make up the nineteen percent, nineteen point five percent. They'll call them other or unknown religions, which it's not other or unknown, they're Afro-Caribbean religions. I don't know why they are, I don't know why they say other or unknown. Okay, other or unknown, right, you know what they are. They're, the other or the unknown are Afro-Caribbean practices or traditions. Okay. So that's what they are. By the way, so Protestant and Catholicism, they're 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 Christian. So Christianity is actually fifty three point seven percent, with thirty two percent being Protestant, twenty one percent being Catholics. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to. That's why I wanted to give me the breakdown again. So thirty two percent. So it's really fifty three point seven percent Christian, with thirty two percent Protestant and twenty one percent Catholics, and of course Hindus from the Indian tradition. Yeah. So on. Okay. Uh, okay. Right, and you were going to talk to us about... Um... The only other part that I have is their population and um, yes. their population and how they, in terms of how they, they live on the islands. Go ahead. So as at mid-2023, uh, there were, or there, well, it was mid-2023, so let's just say there are. There are 1,534,000. 937 people living in Trinidad or on the islands of Trinidad and Tobago. 53.2% of their population live in the urban areas and 46.8% live in rural areas. And I think that that's interesting to know because when you think about it, um, where in light of Jamaica is like only like one eighth of Jamaica live in the rural areas and then everybody else pack up in Kingston. Yes, wow. Um, <laughs> so I I, 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 I actually yes. kind of like the fact that it's almost an even split. Kind of spread out. Yes, that is true. Um, 53, 50. But, okay, you know what? This, I, you have to do what, you look at the population. Did you see, a, did you do a breakdown? How much? So, I still have access to the document, so I can pull it up. It's right. Yeah, what percent is black? What percent is Indian? In terms of what, 
I know we said that. Did we talk about that? I know we said that. We did, but I didn't get an exact figure, but I could look it up and then tell yeah, you. Yeah, like, is it like, I know at one time in terms of the Indo, the Indo-Caribbean population was at one time 49%, and then the African population was at one time 51%, and there was, um, there was always this back and forth between, yeah, so at one time it was 49% Indian, 51%, something of the sort, or it's just like that, 49, 51 something um, something like that um with the rest being either middle eastern or whatever at one but the, but as so now you're talking about the area you said 53 percent live in rural in urban 46 percent live in rural now I, it would be interesting to find out of the 53 percent that live in the rural in the urban mm -hmm. um how many are afro are they afro carib majority afro caribbean or are, is it is it, a, is it a diverse mix you know mm -hmm. why in terms of the fact that you have 50, this even this spread between 53 percent living in urban 46 percent living in rural is it that 53 percent live 53 percent who live in the urban areas and majority of the afro-caribbean descent and the 46 percent that lives in the rural are, are of indo-trinidadian um descent it would be interesting to find that out because i know at one time i don't know if you have anything to talk if you're going to talk about their politics um and at one time, they, they they had an interesting politics with the African party and the Indian black. Party. Yes, with what yeah. is it? You have the African um party and the Indian party. Yes, mm -hmm. right. That's that's the two parties. Right. And so while in like in Jamaica, it's the the, the breakdown in term between the political parties is not in in terms of the African and the Indian. Okay, it's not in terms of of the culture of the people. It's, it's in terms of just JLP or PNP traditions or, yeah. you know, it's, it has nothing to do with the people. It's just more political ideology. That's it. Um, yes. You know? So it says, it says here, I'm for some of the things I never got the details for I'm Googling in terms of their parties. Yeah. Saying that the two, so the political parties have generally run, as we said, along ethnic lines with most Afro-Trinidadians or Trinidadians supporting the People's National Movement, the PNM, and most Indo-Trinidadians supporting various Indian majority parties, such as the current United National Congress. Um, but yeah. Wait, so who is in power now? Um, the PNM or the UNC? I feel like it's PNM, but let me the look. The PNM. I think so. Let me look. Let yeah. me check. It is at one time it was um the Basdeo Pande Basdeo Pande government that was in power. I isn't it coming up right away? Oh the well the prime minister is from the PNM, Keith Rowley. So it's the yeah. PNM, the black people. PNM, okay, yes, um, the PNM is so okay, and but there's usually some. It was always fierce fighting between, in terms of the what defines their political scene is really between the PNM and the UNC in terms of between the African, African the black side as against the Indian side, which is quite interesting. Yeah, but their president is is an Indian lady, but she is registered as independent. Oh, okay. 
All right, that's quite interesting to note. They, so they have a an independent president who is so is not a member of the PNM or the UNC. Or oh, so you know, okay. By the way, they're okay. They're and and it's quite interesting their government because they are not uh, a cult. They are not. Um, they did not retain the Queen as their right. the Queen of England. or sorry, or Britain as their head of state. Mm -hmm. So um, they have a they have a republic, don't they? Trinidad has a, they yes, have a it's president. the Republic of Trinidad yeah. and Tobago. Right, so they have a president. They don't have a governor general, um, and they don't look to England. Uh, so they have a that's so that's that's what that's what differentiates Trinidad from the from some of the other Caribbean islands like um, Jamaica and Barbados mm -hmm. and Bahamas. But you know what I just found that is interesting, sir. Their president, who is an Indian lady, Christine Kangalu, she yeah. was a part of the PNM. She wasn't a part of the Indian Party. Oh, that's quite interesting. Okay, yeah. so probably so maybe there had been changes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm happy for this. So that's maybe something to do with your. That's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. That's to 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 know a woman who is an Indian who is <laughs> unless yeah. she's, so. This is good. This is good. Oh, uh, this is progress in India. I mean, sorry, in Trinidad. <laughs> yeah. And she was with them from 2001 until 2015, and she became independent in 2015. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good to find. The Trinidad and Tobago, they have, a, by the way, they have a mixed economy with significant oil and natural gas reserves. Did you do anything on the economy? They, um, the country has a relatively high GDP per capita in the Caribbean region, but faces challenges with crime and high levels of income inequality and some amount of poverty. Okay? Okay. All right. Well, thank you. You, you were very insightful. Very insightful. I, um, I know you probably submitted a... Did you... Did, what, where did you get some of your information? Honestly, this is Britannica. Okay. So Britannica, they have like um like the what would you call it diagrams representing percentages and everything. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Information. Well, I appreciate that. Um, that was this is very good. Oh, who wants to go next? Who wants to go next? Um, sir, I looked into Barbados. Okay, Barbados. Okay, then let, let's hear about Barbados. Tell us about right. the yeah. population at the 2010 consensus said that Barbados has an estimated population of 277,821. Right, it's a very small country. 200 and how much? 277,821. The, the tabulated population was only 220. 226,193 due to high undercounted, estimated at 18%. So ethnic groups, the population of Barbados is predominantly black, 92.4%, or mixed 3.1%, 2.7% of the population is white, and 1.3% is South Asian. The remaining 0.4% of the population includes East Asian, 0.1% and Middle um and Middle Eastern 0.1%. Official language of Barbados is English. Right. According to another census that was um tabulated 2010, it says 75.6 of the population of Barbados is considered Christian, 2.6 have a non-Christian religion, and 20.6 have no religion. 
in terms of Wait, power. Say this, again. say this again. In in which part, sir? The religion. Oh yeah. Um, it says that seventy six point five no seventy five point six of the population of Barbados is considered Christian. Two point six have a non Christian religion, and twenty point six have no religion. Wow, twenty point six. That's really high. Maybe that twenty point six they mean other or unknown religion and which involved afro-caribbean because depending on where you get your information they um probably when they it's because they may not have a religion religion but many of sometimes they may have traditions but the population is quite interesting notice when you talk about trinidad they never talked about mixed race but barbados they talk about mixed race you notice that a minority of mixed race yes sir and, European, um, and they both have European people of European descent, but Barbados, particularly when after they had their independence and even after that, but you find that a lot of the plantocracy remained on the island of Barbados. Okay. And yes, they have and they have a minority of mixed race. What's the do you know the population of the size of the mixed race? Is it what one percent, two percent? Um mixed race. I just know that ninety two point four is percentage black. Mix is 3.1%. Yeah, mix is 3.1%, which is still significantly high thinking because they have 200,000 people. Um, and probably it's even higher than that in terms of the mixed race. It's probably higher than that. And um, because even the people who are of African descent, many of them have a lot of European ancestry. Okay. So, um, so anyway, but it's quite interesting. But continue. Um, it's stated here, um, along with religion, if you wanted to know more, it says Anglicanism constitutes the largest religious group with 23.9% of the population. It is represented by the church in the province of the West Indies, within which the island belongs to the Diocese of Barbados. Pentecostals are the second largest group, 19.5%. The next largest group are Seventh-day Adventists, 59 of the population followed by Methodists, 4.2%. 3.8% of the population are Ro Roman Catholics. Other Christians include Wesleyans, 3.4%. Um, N-A-Z-A-R-E-N-E-S -E 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 is 3.2%. Church of God, 2.4%. Jehovah Witness, 2.0%. Baptist 1.8, Moravians 1.2, Brethren 0.5, Salvation is 0.4, and the later day Saints 0.1%. Um, other religions group include Rastafarianism, Rastafarians 1.0% of the population, which was introduced to Barbados in 1975, Hindu 0.5%, Jews 0.05%, and the Baha is 0.04%, and Buddhists. Um, in terms of government, it is the Unitary Parliamentary Republic. Yeah, that's the party in power. Okay. Um, they do have demographics in terms of the summer of the 2020 to Barbadian general election. But I don't believe, I don't, I don't think we could go in there. Um, the leader, um, is Madam President Informer, Her Excellence Formal, that was Head of State, Resident State of House. 
um sandra mason since 30th of november 2021 that's the last time another well wow quite a few another woman again that's at the helm in the caribbean right yes sir let me see who is the current um um by the way just so you know uh the history of barbados barbados was colonized by the british and was a significant hub in the transatlantic slave trade and they gained independence from britain in 1966 um on the other hand uh trinidad and tobago trinidad and tobago and it's kind of interesting barbados was only colonized by by britain trinidad and tobago on the other hand they were colonized by the spanish the british the dutch and french um but the last country that colonized them were the british and they got independence from britain in 1962 but so Trinidad and Tobago had multiple um, colonial um, masters that changed hands. Um, the Spanish, the Dutch, the French, the British. While in Barbados, it was just the British. Okay. Um, anyway, so that, that's important. Yes. The current um, prime minister is Mia Motley since 2008. Who? Mia Motley. Since 2018, that's it. Okay. Since 2008? 2018. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, good, good. All right, thank you so much. By the way, um, just so you know that Barbados has a relatively high development index. A high, just like Cuba, they have a high development index. And it's known for its beautiful beaches and tourism industry. It recently, Barbados recently transitioned to a republic. So the information that you are giving me, it's kind of outdated a little bit because now they have a president. Okay. So um, Barbados recently got rid of the queen. Okay. It recently transitioned to a republic. I'm just making that, letting you guys know right now, since recently, Recently, Barbados transitioned to a republic, severing ties with the British monarchy. Only Jamaica hasn't done so. What, what is waiting on Jamaica to do that? They have, you know, Jamaica ha Jamaicans have a love affair with the Queen. Oh, sorry, with, with Britain, with the monarchy. I'm telling you that. <laughs> By the way, so now Barbados is the newest. Well, I cannot believe Barbados beat us. Wow. Anyways, um, anything else you want to add? By the way, Barbados has a mixed economy. They have a mixed economy um, uh, with a strong emphasis on tourism and financial services uh, like Cayman Islands. Now, Barbados faces challenges such as high debt levels like Jamaica and other Caribbean islands and vulnerability to natural disasters, just so you know. Um, so... But as I said to you some time ago, no, they don't. They are not beset by crime and violence. And the last time I did a check, I sometimes peruse the the newspapers for the Caribbean islands. When I go on Barbados, hardly any crime. If there's a crime, one guy slashed somebody's wrist. I mean, hand with a knife. That's that much. Or there's a theft in a store or something like that. That's it. Or no slashing a knife. Sorry, somebody stole a, a bag. <laughs> so that's the main news, and it comes on the front. Uh, but there's much, much crime and violence in Barbados. 
But thank you so much, uh, Gavion. I appreciate that. Well, what is your source? Source, give me a second. Let me look back again. The source is um, the government of Barbados. It says Barbados Integrated, Integrated Government, BIG. Okay. All right. So you went straight to the source. <laughs> yes, sir. Gavion, you went straight to the source. Yes, sir. Nothing against you, Alisa. Okay. Because that's still, uh, that's an independent, in a, in a sense, an independent source. Okay. Um, but thank you so much, guys. Lisa, I mean, Alisa, thank you, Gavion. Who is next? Who's next? Uh, anybody wants to, who wants to go next? Uh, Fermin, Jessica, um, Alan, Renee. Who wants to go next? So I did get around to doing it, sir. Okay, but uh, fine. It's okay if you did, but is there any Caribbean island that you know a little bit about that you want to just quickly introduce to us? <laughs> no, no, sir. I don't know. Um, our only person, only Caribbean island I visited would be Trinidad. So, and that's already gone, sir. So I don't when know. You visited Trinidad. What was your experience in Trinidad? Um, it was. It was good because I was with family, but um, I was in summer school. I was there because I was there for the whole summer. Um, that was summer in, school. Actually, you mean what, in high school? No, man. This would have been prep school. Prep school. Um, that would have been a. a, a it was. It was. It was difficult. Um, some amount of bullying, considering I was Jamaican. Um, but overall, it was a beautiful. When was this? When was this? This would have been. Um, when I would have been nine or ten, sir. Okay, so that's like two thousand oh, and something. About twenty years ago, sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, hold. Can we just stick up in at the bullying because you're Jamaican? Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh wow, it's quite interesting. I want to know more about that. Right. Okay, tell me what I mean. How did that happen? Why you? Why were you being bullied? How did you? Um, how were you able to navigate and to you, to live beyond that and to rise above that? And um, what you know, what you know, tell me about that experience. Um, well, sir, it would have started with my sister first, um, okay. and of course, I'm being the, the younger brother coming in to save the day, um, but also in that getting some of the bullying myself. Um, but I'm a fighter, sir. So yeah, long story short, I got in trouble for fighting. Um, and after that, the bullying kind of stopped, but it was definitely rooted to the fact that you were Jamaican. Yeah. Okay. Did, did they feel offended or threatened or what were some of the, uh, the what were some of the, uh, the, the words or the descriptions? How did they describe you? I'm more just looking at you as, as lesser than, um, I think there's, um, I don't know. That was probably the time that I came to realize that there was this um, 
you know, rivalry between the two countries that's not justified in any way, um, but just between the two countries. Um, there was, yeah, but it, it, it didn't affect me in any way, sir. Um, mostly, though, it came, if I could recall properly, it would have been from more of the Indian side. Um, that would have, um, you know, I would well, have... I, forgot, I should have asked, were you, in the, um, were you in an area that was predominantly Indian? I couldn't tell you, sir. I don't even remember. Um, yeah. But I couldn't tell you, no. But okay, that's quite interesting. And you know, I lived in Cayman Islands for a while, and I, you know, and I heard, I have heard that um, some persons, a lot of Jamaicans are not liked, although there are a lot of Jamaicans there. But so in some ways, there's still some kind of perception or feeling that or attitudes towards Jamaicans. I mean, one of what I've heard about Jamaica is that first of all, yes, there's rivalry between the Caribbean islands, especially between Jamaica and. And Trinidad and Tobago, yes, um, for dominance, I guess, I don't know, which is good, it's healthy, competition is healthy, however, but there is a rivalry, rivalry, but um, many people think in the Caribbean, some people in the Caribbean believe that Jamaica, is um, because Jamaica, Jamaica pulled out of the West Indian Federation, and many people blame Jamaica for the, for the demise or the fall of the West Indies Federation. Um, so, so in a sense, many there was many there was a lot of bad blood, political bad blood, I guess. And I don't know if there are stories that were passed down. Um, I didn't know about this West Indian Federation and that we had pulled out and we were responsible until I went to the Cayman Islands and was serving as a minister in the Cayman Islands. And I had conversations with various people where I and it was then that I learned of the kind of the some kind of mixed feelings among some Caribbean peoples towards Jamaicans as it relates to several issues. One, the West Indian Federation. Um, two, you know, they feel like Jamaicans were too involved in many of their countries and decision making, but um or many people but of course Cayman Islands was Cayman Islands was part of Jamaica at once and many of Jamaica Cayman Islands offices were as were administered by Jamaicans or in some sense, they utilize many Jamaican services and so on. So I don't know if that played a role in it, but um, but yeah, it's quite interesting. I don't know if attitudes have changed and as it relates to between the two countries, and or at or attitudes towards Jamaica in terms as it relates to the West Indian Federation, um, and um, it's quite interesting to discuss, um, you know, Caribbean islands and how closely connected we are. And I have argued that as much as we are close and we have West Indies cricket and we have similar experiences and so on, I don't believe that we 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 are as connected connected as we ought to be. Um, we are still insulated, especially the the, the popular the citizenry, the population. Probably politically, we are not in terms of the caricom. We may have big meetings and so on, but that as far as our connections. And the the dialogue and between the Caribbean islands. Yes, um, Alisa. Sir, I just find it very interesting um, that it would have been as a child that Matthew would have been exposed to something like that because that isn't a concept I became aware of until I was in probably high school. 
And it wasn't even a matter of the fact that it's a rivalry between the two islands, but it's a problem that one has with the other. Because even to refer to the West Indies Federation, it was the prime, well, he wouldn't have been the prime minister yet. The premier of Trinidad and Tobago is the one that said one from 10 leaves zero. And on that basis, he is the one that withdrew Trinidad from the West Indies Federation. But what is interesting is that that federation was not wholly Caribbean-led. It was the British who dissolved it. So who was really at the helm of it anyway, if you get what I'm saying? So it's like... Well, you know, it was within the interest of the British to dissolve the Caribbean or the West Indian Federation. Federation. First of all, I don't believe that it, it because if... If if the West Indies were to have the West Indian countries were to have formed formed an, an alliance and get an independence on block and became a juggernaut, it would rival Britain, it would rival America, the US, it would rival many of the post-industrial countries, you know, in a sense. But when they are smaller, it's easier for them to control. It's okay, not only that, it's much more difficult for the for islands of the Caribbean to compete on the world stage as well. So in a sense, it was within the British West, the British to dissolve it and for them not to have, a, and of course, one from zero leaves, one, one from 10 leaves zero because in a sense, the West, well, because the, when Jamaica decided to pull out, it, Jamaica was one of the most powerful countries at the time. And of course they had bauxite and all of that. And Jamaica's, GDP was the strongest in the Caribbean. Okay. Um, the currency was rival that of the US. So I mean, when Jamaica pulled out, it was, yes, devastating for the Caribbean, for the other Caribbean islands. But I think also the other Caribbean islands, in a sense, they also were also um, contemplating pulling out. And in a sense, there was a wider agreement. But Jamaica pulled out first. So, but, and then, of course, in a sense, it was convenient to point the finger on Jamaica when, when Caribbean, other Caribbean governments wanted the same thing, but it was easy for them to point to Jamaica for doing that. But, um, but even so, today, I believe that we need to learn from that as Caribbean, as, as Caribbean countries. And I think that our Caribbean governments must do more to facilitate integration and cooperation okay okay we know we i know we have uh ue and so on and so but i think there need to be, to be greater cooperation between and among caribbean countries we need to okay support caribbean products support caribbean services and solutions we need to understand become more aware of what other caribbean islands are doing what they are not doing what support they can do what products that we can purchase what products that they can purchase Active, um, active trade happening between islands of the Caribbean. Well, I know, say, for example, Guyana at one point exported, I think, rice to Jamaica, and Jamaica was exporting to other parts of the Caribbean. Um, and uh, but but and I know there's been a greater move towards that. But but yes, economically, politically, but even amongst the businesses. In terms of our, our people and our business, there need to be a greater um, movement and uh, and a, a more act, a, um, active policy, a deliberate policy 
towards facilitating networking and connection between peoples of the Caribbean as a way to facilitate this, this dream of a West Indian Federation whereby we can now work together and compete as a people with similar experiences and interests. Um, so that's one thing to consider. But thank you so much, Alan and Alisa and Gavion. Who wants to go next? Anybody else? She, uh, let me see. Can I call on somebody? Let me see. I'm going to call on someone. Let's go with Felmin. Felmin, are you there? Felmin. Yes, sir. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? Tired. <laughs> I apologize that you are tired. The class will finish soon. We have another hour to go. But that, were you able to um uh, do this um this assignment, or were you able to do a, a do research on any Caribbean island? No, I, di I didn't get to finish it, to be honest, sir. I saw I didn't get to look at it at all, to be honest. Did you have you ever I, have you visited I, any Caribbean have you visited any Caribbean island? Nope, I've only traveled once, and it was to the US about two years ago. <laughs> okay, um, okay, but do, what do you know of any Caribbean island that we have not discussed? Well, listening to or the that others, they would, listening to the others, they would have touched on uh, Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados. Um, you know, you know the. The stigma or the, the the thing that they have against us, the grudge, I would put it that lightly. Um, you know, they don't really like us uh, and they tend to want to look down on us. So those are the things that I am I I I know of and hear of. Um and to some extent what I've witnessed with, with persons that I would have interacted with from the Caribbean island. Um, and some persons also indirectly as well, and I know of others who would have had bad experiences with them. Um, I know, and so I know that there is some rivalry, um, between Jamaica, Trinidad, and the and the Barbados. And by those of uh, what is this rivalry? Okay, fine. I guess I know. Okay, what we talk about rivalry one, stemming from what. Okay, what Alan had said in terms of his experience as a boy, um, briefly in Trinidad and how he was bullied because he was Jamaican. And of course, we said that part of that, especially from, he said, especially from the Indian side. And um, and I have experienced, no, we're not bully or competition, but in being in Cayman Islands, we've heard of the uh, many Jamaicans are, in a sense, not liked in a sense or looked down upon in a, in a sense or there's some and, and negative mm -hmm. attitudes some people not I me mean, it's not everywhere some places so let me not let me not generalize and we're saying and of course there's always been this rival between caribbean islands and that's healthy um but of course you talk about the issue of looking down of course we play football today uh, in concacaf we have a concacaf or we have a caribbean competition and we compete in terms of football and cricket and and track and field but this competition stemmed and i said to you part of the problem of course part we were jamaicans were blamed for pulling out of the west indian federation but of course we said that probably that's an argument from convenience 
but but you know we in a sense when you have people who are you know black people have a tendency of competing amongst themselves <laughs> we have a tendency of competing amongst ourselves which has also affected our ability to compete globally with other peoples if we think in categories and live in a world based in categories but of course i'm thinking for the world for for the world to be better for the world for the world to not decay or devoid into decadence and decay and so on and to continue on a path to progress i have said that um I, we need to move away from thinking in terms of categories and race and privilege and special interests yet we have a world where people just are naturally inclined to think and in those ways and to group themselves in um, to, to 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 work in groups and then of course then there are some people who would point to animals say well look at what had they would say look at what happened in the animal kingdom or point to nature and you see so and then and then come to the conclusion then it stands to reason then that okay so human is human beings aren't any different um but that's you could say that's a pseudo appeal to association as if human beings are animals in fact human beings exceptionalize themselves distinguish themselves from other animals as higher order creatures who have the ability to think intelligently yet when people want to make a judgment about certain things they point to nature and to animals which i quite i find ambivalent and perplexed you say that human beings have a natural inclination and drive to group themselves so therefore it's then so you start with that premise you look to nature okay fine we look to nature we call that let's use logic whether through inductive method or the deductive method of reasoning okay using pseudo appeal or let's say, let's not call it pseudo because pseudo means false so let's say using an appeal to what to nature said people okay nature animal they usually group themselves but there's there's also animals that are solitary beings but a lot of animals work in terms of groups mammals and so on and if human beings bear any resemblance to animals and they say human beings are animals too so they were then we say okay human beings are animals and if you look at the animal kingdom pointing to lower classes of animals they operate like that and then come to a conclusion therefore human beings um but therefore it's okay for human beings to act in terms of uh in terms of in, in terms of their connections and their groupings and so on, but but then I would push back and say, excuse me, no. As again, again, I say this, I disagree with that. It's a pseudo appeal to association, pseudo appeal, pseudo. That's a question begging epitaph. A pseudo is a fallacy. Uh, it's a fallacy. Fallacy is a false argument. It's a pseudo appeal, pseudo appeal to association, false appeal to something. It's like, in other words, comparing apples to bananas, apples to to oranges sorry apples to oranges okay it's like comparing apples to oranges human beings distinguish and exemplify themselves as being higher order animals 
part of the human race that are we are intelligent beings. Okay, so therefore, yeah. So just because other lower lower animals do that, okay. How can we then draw our conclusions about ourselves from looking at lower beings who we are exceptional from? Or we are much more exceptional from those beings. So I'm not. So then, if that's critical thinking, you have to ask yourself. But anyways, I said, we, what, what, what am I getting at? We're saying that um, we say black people, in a sense, maybe, but maybe that's how we were colonized in this Western world to think. That is okay. That to, and so, to think in those ways, to, to prevent us from competing in the ways that we need to compete in order to get to the next level. But as I said to you again, in order to, to move, in or if the world is to if the world is to ever continue to develop and to progress or to preserve destruction and calamity, it is for us to move away from thinking in terms of category. In fact, since we are at we are all theologians or we are scholars of of the Bible, we are all we are, we are all philosophers, yes? And if we are all philosophers, then we think in certain, we all think in certain ways. You know, actually, I, the point I was making, I have I forgotten the point. I've lost it. I was about to make a very poignant and powerful point about we all being thinkers, and I forget completely the point I was going to make. So, but anyways, let's move on. We're looking at um, the fact that We are, I can't remember, I was going to make a powerful point and I can't, I can't remember, but we will, but the point is made already. So we move on. We are comparing Ireland to the Caribbean. We're talking about how, um, black people. Good afternoon. Yeah. Good afternoon, Renee. Renee. What's yes. up? How are you? Um, I didn't get to do the assignment, but I have had, um, the chance to temporarily live in Trinidad and Antigua. Wait, hold on. You live in Antigua? Temporary, yes. I, I will. Oh, tell me about Antigua. Tell me about Antigua. Well, it, it is it is a wonderful country, but it is not as developed as Jamaica. Um, there is still a lot of board buildings. When did you live in Antigua? Antigua? When? Yeah. I think it was in 2014, 2015. Okay, recently. Not that's not too far from now. Continue. Yeah. Yes, so um, I, I work as a lot of Jamaicans are in Antigua and Trinidad, and they mostly work in security companies. Um, in Antigua, Jamaicans normally work along with the, the, the Antiguans and also the Guyanese. Um, in, in Trinidad, um, they don't like Jamaicans. Um, one of the reasons that I have observed is that when Jamaicans go to Trinidad, they have an aim to make money. So they are kind oh, of work given. When, when they go are... to Trinidad, their aim is to make money. Yes. So they are work driven. So so they will do like um double shift, triple shifts. Um whenever it comes around carnival season, um Trinidadians don't like to work. They like to party and drink most of the time. So in in those times, Jamaicans normally get to um, work more and, and get more income. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why Trinidadians um, love Jamaican in regard to the work area. The work ethic. Right, like the, like the supervisors, because typically um, they don't like Jamaicans, but like the, the, the supervisors, they will gravitate towards them because they are always available to work. Okay. Yes. So, okay. Oh, wait, that's... Uh... We talk about wait hold up that's quite interesting they don't like jamaicans um they don't you said they don't like jamaicans in, no for the same like, reasons they like jamaicans yes <laughs> okay are the co-workers i i don't know if it's jealousy but some the co-workers they, they don't typically gravitate towards jamaicans right but because jamaicans go um, they are willing to work two shifts. Um, like they will stay on, for example, a security um, location. They will stay there for two days if if it needs be. So whenever um the head is short, they are always av available to work. So I, I think this is one of the reasons why um the co-workers are the, are those that are at the same level as though the Jamaicans will go to work. They don't really like them. If you understand what I'm saying. Wow, this sounds yeah, yes, I understand. I mean, we're talking about the value placed on people. Talk about the value of the slave, the value of the individual, the value of the immigrant. Um, or, you know, or so on. You say, for example, I said, say, for example, the slaves are seen as big teeth with sharp heads. I was, I was, I was speaking poetic terms, but um, it's only, it's only seen as, um, as as a hero in terms of what he can do to cleaning neoliberal waste. Cleaning neoliberal waste, the Jamaican as as valuable only to clean waste. Only because he can work 10 and 15 jobs. Oh, okay. But at the same time, when the Jamaican works 10 and 15 jobs and make money, that's also a problem. So the Jamaican, so it's okay, the Jamaican is liked if he is a worker but if he is an earner he is not liked no ah so it's the earner versus the, the earner versus the worker yes. okay. so the jamaican as an earner is despised upon but the jamaica as a worker is embraced yes oh wow <laughs> yeah this is interesting i would love you know there are people you know that's in you know in in the u.s or the Jamaican diaspora, say for example, the post-industrial country where, where, where Caribbean, yeah, we have a Carib, we have a Caribbean diaspora. We have a and the Caribbean, we work together here in the diaspora and the Caribbean diaspora movement. And the Caribbean diaspora people, when they are outside of their local, they are united and there is no grudge. But within their locals, there is grudge. <laughs> Quite interesting. You know, I mean, when we are together outside of the the Caribbean, living in the global north, the Caribbean peoples are, they work together in groups, they live together in communities, they go to church together, they worship together, they see themselves as Caribbean peoples, not necessarily as Jamaicans, or, or they see them as Caribbean peoples, and they and this, many of them form Caribbean groups and movements and associations, and, you know, and when is the, when it's time for the pen relays, Yes, a, a big Jamaican. Okay, and of course I understand Jamaica. 
Jamaican influence in the world is major. Jamaican influence in the world is big, to be honest. It is big. It is major. From the track and field stars and the Bob Marley, which is absolutely major, and the Usain Bolt and the Merlin Nati, it is major. You know, so, you know, and in a sense, Jamaica, I'm, I, I don't want to sound biased, but in a sense, Jamaica is, is would sometimes would be seen as the, the U.S. of the, the Caribbean, in a sense. Um, it, you know, you go to some of the, I said to you one time, if you go, some of the stores, they call them, that you said the, a Jamaican store. Everybody know what a Jamaican store is. But if you say Trinidadian store, they, they think Trinidad is a parish in Jamaica. Or the many Trinidadian or the Caribbean islands, instead of saying Trinidad or Antigua or Barbados or Bayesian restaurant, they said no, Caribbean and Jamaican cuisine. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, but Jamaicans don't say Caribbean. They say Jamaica because everybody knows Jamaican. And it's okay. And it's, they know it's island. But in fact, some people think that Jamaica, some Americans think that Jamaica is, is, a, is an African country. And if you're watching this, or listening to this recording, Jamaica or the Caribbean islands, they are not African countries, okay? They are part of the Americas, just so you know. Then, okay? And, um, but that's very important to point out. Um, anything, but um, let me see if there's anything else I wanted to say, okay? The perception of people within and those without. Uh, what about Antigua? Um, Antigua is not as bad. Um, sometimes there is jealousy between the Guyanese and Jamaican, but the work environment it is not as bad as um Trinidad. It's alright. It is not as tense as Trinidad. Yeah. And and if once you work, you will you will get good locations and um good positions. So it is much fairer. Um. Yeah. But however, Antigua is is a bit limited. Um, all right. If a Jamaica wants to go to Antigua to like migrate to Antigua, it is much easier. But Trinidad is more um what must I say? Secured. They, they, they don't they hardly grant permits. It's not easy to acquire permit. But Antigua it is more easier once you're you're with an um, a company they can sponsor you going and they get your work permit so it is much easier there oh you know that's another thing um, i remember one time the caribbean islands were fighting against each other um, in terms of using immigration policy requiring each other to have visas because one time it was free to go to some caribbean islands and then sometime in the 90s or to, in the 2000s sorry there was some kind I don't know what was going on between some of the Caribbean islands. They started requiring visas, okay, which I believe requiring visas also helped to promote Caribbean separation and dividedness. If you want to promote Caribbean integration, Caribbean federation, the Caribbean community, you know, the Caribbean community in the diaspora is strong, but within the Caribbean, I think there is also a uh, the, that's needed the caribbean integration is it's weak as much as as much as people want to you know recently the prime minister oh caribbean west indian federation is strong that's only in words look at whole caribbean you need to we need to do a study we need to do a study of caribbean peoples what is your perception of okay fine we see how jamaica Jam, well i'm asking you um, Alan and Renee and myself, 
what is your perception of the Caribbean? And what is your perception of the Caribbean people? Perception of you living in the Caribbean is quite interesting. That's very, because I've, you know, teaching this course, I've always talked about the perception of the Jamaican or the perception of the Caribbean as it relates to the global North perception of the Caribbean. But what of the Caribbean perspective of the Caribbean, especially the Caribbean, um, the, between the islands, and we talk about Caribbean cooperation, many people are upset with me and think that I'm wrong and, um, and unfollow me and unfriend me, but I am not wrong. I am going to be bold. Caribbean integration of how Caribbean requiring visas to travel within the Caribbean does not promote speaks to challenges West Indian Federation and cooperation. Okay, that is still lacking in the Caribbean. I'm telling you that. But as as much as okay, in fact, as much as we have some, we can facilitate some trade and export among the Caribbean, but also cooperation among our peoples. And also exposure and awareness among our people. It's very vital. Very vital. Um, but what about um, the language and how they speak, um, Rene, in terms of Antigua? The language and uh, tell me about, you know, the experience there and the, the peoples, how they live as against Jamaica. Or, and and come, uh, tell me about that. Um, all right, for me, it, it wasn't that bad because there's a lot when I say there's a lot of Jamaicans, there is a lot of Jamaican. Um, that just like how we um have like is it similar how, though, it is, yeah, they have, yes, go ahead, it is, it is similar. Um, like how we have patois, they yeah. have some, I don't, I don't know the term to use now, but they have some little um sayings like, like if you are talking to them, they will say. Um, tal, which means no, are with a joke at all. So they have their little, um, I don't know the term to use right now, sorry, but they have their freedom. Look Creole. Yeah, Creole. Okay. Yes. Um, and apart, apart from that, it is good. Um, it was, the experience was good. I'm sorry, I lose train of thought. What was the question again? Remind me of the question that you were asking. Um, in terms of what about their development, um, and how developed is and you said Antigua is limited, it's not as developed as Jamaica. No, no. I, I would never give up Jamaica for Antigua. Um one <laughs> thing I have been looking at being to Trinidad, because I, I have had the opportunity to, to go to the US and, and I'm looking at Trinidad. Why are so many Jamaicans migrating to Trinidad and Antigua? And I wonder if it's because they haven't had the chance to visit a first world country because a lot of persons gravitate towards um this country because of job opportunities okay. but but for example antigua is very limited because when i was um living there i was thinking i i i had to pursue a higher education and looking around there wasn't many options for me there so unless it would, would have been in a medical field, which is very expensive because um, their medical school is basically like a U.S. school located in Antigua, based on my um, information um, that I received back then. Wait, so Antigua doesn't have, much, doesn't have a, a university or a college? 
it has college but um it's i'm not remember what the college was focused on but like jamaica where you have ue where you have a vast variety of, of different degree program antigua does not have that okay yes a lot of caribbean islands don't have that they have to travel or they may have some international school um and as well so yes um say for example you know haiti cuba the education system is good haiti cuba and then there's uh ue that's it where in terms of guyana barbados i think as well jamaica um Trinidad and Tobago, I think they had did they establish a campus on Bahamas, I think. I think that's um yeah, but thank you so much. Thank you. That was good. Uh, we have much more uh islands. Haiti, we said that Haiti social political economy, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere with a struggling economy, primarily based on agriculture, particularly subsistence, farming, and it faces challenges such as political instability, corruption, and natural disasters. Currently, their prime minister is installed, um, and their, their, their last president was assassinated. Um, the religions, most Haitians practice Catholicism blended with traditional African religions known as voodoo. Um, in, some, in some instances, people would say that the national religion of Haiti is voodoo, and some people say it's Catholicism. Um, in terms of the demographics, the population of Haiti is predominantly of African descent, with a small minority of mixed race and European descent. But uh, the history of um, Haiti is that Haiti was the first independent nation in Latin America and the Caribbean, born out of successful slave rebellion against French colonial rule in the early 19th century. But Haiti con today continues to face challenges with um, political um, instability, um, poverty and natural disasters. Uh, and of course, Haiti received international aid, but struggles to achieve significant economic development. Um, Cuba, on the other hand, um, has a socialist economy with state control over industries, state control over industries. Um, Cuba has faced economic challenges exacerbated by the U.S. embargo, but has a relatively strong healthcare and education system. Of course, we said that the U.S. embargo um, is imposed on Cuba, partly because of how, because Cuba has adopted a socialist or communist style of government, which opposes U.S. style of government, which they um, had tried unsuccessfully to impose on the Cuban territory. And as such, they impose an embargo, with preventing them from um, engaging and exchanging in um in the U. now when obama became president he tried to loosen the embargoes but uh or the restrictions but since donald trump came to power he re-established those embargoes in terms of the religion of cuba cuba is predominantly christian with a significant influence of santeria a syncretic religion a syncretic religion Com um, combining or combing elements of Catholicism and African religions in Cuba, okay? And just so you know, um, Af Cuba is not devoid of its African influence, all although it has um, a strong... Well, let's look at the demographics. The population is diverse with significant Afro-Cuban 
many people don't know that a significant afro cuban and mixed race population alongside european descent okay they have a, a significant afro cuban and i mean i realized that many jamaicans in the late 1800s and even in the 1900s and even throughout um went to cuba and many of them um intermingled and interloped with the with the Europeans there. My it's my great grandfather was white and he met my great grandmother who was from Cuba, who was on who was in the, living in the island, living on the island of Cuba at the time. Okay. Um, but uh but Cuba gained independence from Spain in the late nineteenth century um and later became a a socialist state um, under Fidel Castro's leadership after the Cuban Revolution in 1959. And um, the current position of Cuba is that despite the economic challenges, Cuba has relatively has a relatively high human development index. Cuba has a relatively high human development index. Um, and we said that the last time. Um, compared to other Caribbean nations. Its political system remains under scrutiny internationally. And of course, the kind of system, um, we say that they have a kind of socialist um, government that has control over most industries. Because they have, because state control most industries, it limits penetration. That was part of the problem. Because they limit penetration, it was difficult then from it's the, it's it limits international interference hence the embargo as well now let's look at the month the dominican republic uh we don't have much time left so i'm going to quickly go through what i have here the, the dominican republic the social political economy um of the dominican republic uh, let me do a new share here um what are you seeing on my screen are you seeing social political economy? Yes, sir. Yes. Jamaica is number four and Trinidad is number five. Great. So the social political the Dominican Republic has a mixed economy with sectors like tourism, agriculture, and manufacturing contributing significantly. Um, it faces uh, challenges such as income inequality and environmental um, degradation. One of my friends just went to DR and he stayed on a resort. He and a couple of his friends, and they said that they they said that they were a bit nervous to go outside, and they didn't get. I asked to go to Haiti. They didn't get to go to Haiti, but they said that they did get a chance to go into the local communities, and there was a lot of poverty. Um, they um, a lot of infrastructural um, issues, so um, it was quite interesting. And it's you know, it's almost all of the Caribbean islands. And when we watch Life and Death, it's all. It's almost the same thing. In parts of Jamaica too, you find uh, uh, where you have tourists. I mean, the, the tourism areas of hotels. There's there are areas of lack, um, um, squatter settlements, zinc fencing, um, slum communities, uh, as well, alongside beautiful edifices and hotels. Um, you find that in Dominican Republic as well. So, so yes, there it, it's so, so Dominican Republic, like other Carib other 
some Caribbean islands face challenges such as income inequality and environmental environmental degradation degradation. Now really again the religion or oh, the religion is Catholicism. Catholicism is the dominant religion in DR. But there's also a growing Protestant population. It's and it's growing rapidly. Uh, the demographics of of DR of Dominican Republic is that the population is predominantly of mixed race, mulatto descendant with significant African and European influences. Um, at one time, the Dominican the Dominican uh, just the uh, Dominican uh, sorry. Dominican Republic, the peoples of Dominican Republic declared themselves white or they or refused to associate themselves with with their African side because of their history. Um, because the Dominican uh, because because Dia was colonized briefly, they were colonized by Spain, but later occupied by Haiti before gaining independence in the 19th century. And so they had declared themselves once white or more, more drawing up their European influences. And even up to today, they, many of them still consider themselves white. And in fact, when Haiti was experiencing their, I mean, say for example, Haiti today, they share border with DR, and, but their uh, Dominican Republic, they have excommunicated, they have killed um, and they have had a very restrictive policy or draconian policy towards Haiti and Haitians. Um, okay, so in terms of uh, the current position of the Dominican Republic, they have seen economic growth in recent years, but still grapples with issues like corruption and inequality. Um, I won't talk about Jamaica yet because you guys know about Jamaica. Um, but fine, we'll talk. Jamaica has a mixed economy with tourism, agriculture, including the renowned Jamaican coffee, Blue Mountain coffee and sugar, and mining and bauxite being key sectors. But of course, it faces challenges such as crime, poverty, and unemployment. Crime, poverty, unemployment, and also high amount of inequality. Okay? Um, the majority of Jamaica, Jamaicans are Christians, with significant influence of Rastafarianism. Um, in terms of the, the demographics, the population is predominant, predominantly of African descent. And the history is that Jamaica was born, um, well, we were colonized by the British, but before that, Spain were a significant hub in the transatlantic trade. Again, we gained independence from Britain in 1962. Um, we talked about we talked about Trinidad already. Um, oh, by the way, in terms of the current position of Jamaica, um, if I were to ask you what the current position of Jamaica is, I mean, you know, we don't have much time, so we can't go through that. But um, we are Jamaica is diverse. We are known for music or sports. Um, economic growth has been modest over the last couple of years. In fact, we are growing in terms of our export. We weren't earning much from our export, but the last report I saw about a couple of months ago or weeks ago is that I think our export we were we were gaining it we had a significant increase in terms of in, um, our income from export earnings I think it was that up at 30 percent not only that um, crime was significantly down has been um, and over the last couple of weeks and months but you guys have challenged that 
But what I've heard is that in terms of crime and violence, because the country faces challenges in terms of crime and debt, but there has been a significant move towards law reducing crime in Jamaica. What is crime in Jamaica now, guys? Anybody know what's going on in terms of crime and debt and poverty and unemployment? What's going on there? I had seen a report a few weeks ago published by the GIS. Yeah, what's going on? Um, in terms of the crime rate that it had been down um, by, I think it was a significant number, um, in the, but it was just for the January period. Okay. I'm going to try to find it back and tell you, but I do recall seeing that specifically. Just give me a second, please, sir. Yes. And I think what we... Go ahead. That's for Jamaica, right? Yes. I think this is about 40% in comparison to last year this time. A 40% reduction? Yeah, that's in terms of the murder rate overall. It's more focused on the murder rate, if I'm not mistaken. Oh well, that's significant. That that is that's truly significant. That is truly significant. It was this time last year. That is truly significant. If that's the case. Hold up. Um, sorry, because I was looking, I got distracted, but should I still say what it was that I found? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, the headline from the GIS said serious crimes at lowest rates in 22 years, and that information was according to the Prime Minister. Um, he said that serious crimes, including murder, shootings, rape, robbery, and break-ins, are down by 10.7%, the lowest in 22 years. He further informed that murders were down by 7.8% in 2023 when compared to 2022 and in the first 22 days of 2024, murders are down 21.9% relative to 2023. That's very good. That's, that's actually really good. What, what, are, what, what are they doing differently in Jamaica in terms of what is the okay? You know what that we need to, you know what we need to look at. We need to look at okay, crime and violence and especially excess um uh, murders are down. What about poverty and income inequality, and so that we can do a a, a correlational comparison. Um, is poverty has is poverty down? Is unemployment high? Is um income inequality down? Um, what's been what anybody know um, in terms of poverty figures, the latest poverty figures for Jamaica? Anybody? Sir, what, what is permeating the air now is from the politi politicians. Yes. So, um, but to give you a figures, what we may be able to come up with is what the politicians is spewing all over this all over the place because this coming month is a local government election. So well, the figures true. that are circling right now is, I don't want to say that they are not true, but you know, it, 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 it's, it's from a different perspective. But overall, the last thing I heard from a starting report, I can't give you the percent, 
that yes, um, unemployment is down and even though some of going not see it, unemployment is down and the economy is going. We still not see it, but according to their report. So I can't give you a, a figure, but I'm sure my colleague who is looking it up right now possibly can. Well, yes, yes. If you could do that, it would be great because that's this is how you do studies and do correlation of that. I would love to find out um, if... So crime and violence is down. Um, so I would want to see if whether or not that have any bearing has any bearing or whether or not that's a consequence of the poverty being down the economy getting better unemployment being down um and so on so that it's interesting to to find that out so um while you guys crunch your numbers let um let me go to the next island oh okay um, while you guys do that research for me let me know what the figures are what in terms of poverty um, I'm not seeing anything for 2024. I'm seeing an article that was published by the. What about 23? Right. So the article I found was published in August last year, August 18, 2023. It says the Planning Institute of Jamaica is projecting a fall in the poverty rate from 16.7 percent, to which it rose in 2021 representing a 5.7% point increase relative to 2019. Um, Wait, okay, that's 2021. No, I have I have updated figure which showed that because 2021 was like during the middle of the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic, because in 2023, right. I think poverty went to about 21% in Jamaica. Um, poverty went up. So yes, it was predicted to fall, but it didn't fall because of COVID. And so poverty went from 16.7% in 2021, actually, in to at least and to 17 over 17%. And at one time it was at 21%. But I want to know it'd be interesting to find out what it is now um, post-COVID. Um, uh, but I know that unemployment is up, earnings are higher. Um, you know, you are telling me that Statin or the Planning Institute is, is projecting that poverty will is projecting a, a reduction in poverty. So, so we know of the projections, but in terms of the actual figure, we, we do not have that. So, it's interesting to find out. So, maybe we can get that later on. But, um, but this is good. It's good to know that um, that's what in terms of crime and violence is. But as you said, some of the figure the figures may not be correct because it's a local government election. And it is within their interest to provide a narrative that makes them look good. So now we have to separate. So now we have to find an independent study um, that is not sponsored by the political directorate or by the government that truly shows what crime. But the thing is, you know, but I wanted to make the point: crime and violence is, in terms of the numbers, it's never stable. We in one month we may see crime and violence because a couple of months ago crime and there was a sharp decline in crime and violence. But as soon as there was a sharp decline, within weeks there was a, a sharp rise. Okay, and so and that has always defined Caribbean, some Caribbean islands, especially so for example Trinidad or Jamaica, Guyana, Haiti. You know they may even in terms not just same thing. Same thing with in terms of the economy or GDP growth. If GDP or if poverty, one if okay, if the economic indicators if there is, is positive today, okay, it's never lasting. It's never stable. 
So one of the things that has defined our economies, what I, what has defined our our socio our socioeconomics, our socio the political economy of the Caribbean, of Caribbean, is that it's 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 our the, the fluctuation, our fluctuations. We're never stable. Okay, we go from one extreme to the next. So it's difficult to to um to make certain predictions or to do certain planning and so on. And that is why many investors say that they're op opposed to investing in certain places among certain people because in those places, it's difficult to plan, it's difficult to predict uh, and because of the instability. So what, so, one of the, so what needs to happen then is not just to promote, not just to have these great numbers, but the thing is now, how do we these numbers um stable if when they're good okay alisa your hand was up oh i was just saying that i found an article i guess that was released on the same day as the one that the gis posted to say it okay. was saying that so while the gis headline was that poverty is projected to go down the rgr one was saying that um poverty increased by 16.7%. So that would have been the post, I guess that would have been the post COVID um, yes, figure, is, yes. which would have been the same August 18 last year. But I couldn't access any further details because my phone said that it's not protected. So I never bothered to click on it. Oh. <laughs> well, yes, yes. So sometimes probably have to install a VPN or a VPS. I don't know. Um, sometimes sometime they said it's, they, they don't want you to go on a particular website. Um, and so they create, they, they give you a false reading of the website, say, oh, it's not, it's a fake website. Say, for example, my, one of my websites, RonaldoCMcKenzie.com, it was flagging, um, search engines were flagging it when people tried to go on it as, oh, critical alert, it's, this website is stealing your information. That's a lie. That is an algorithm that people who are, or who are scrupulous, on, okay, unscrupulous, sorry, people who want to, who are competing, or your, your competitors, they don't want, they don't want, they want to divert traffic away from your business, divert traffic away from your website. So they flood it with malware, spyware, or with false information as, okay, so that you don't go on that website, so that you don't promote that website, because they have something against that website. They don't want you to see that website. So they bring, they create critical errors that had, have, I had not, somebody had brought that to my attention with one of my websites and I had to reach out, reach out. I had to reach out to Google. I had to reach out to all the search engine and said, stop flagging my website. Okay. It is a legitimate website. Stop flagging my website. You are driving traffic away from my website. And to be honest, no, I'm talking to you about that. That is a legal matter. That is a lawsuit. Okay. That is a, that's legal action I can take against search engines that are flagging my website deliberately to drive business away from my business. Yes. So anyways, I brought that up. So, um, because, so you may find that that's what they're trying to do. So investigate and see what's going on with this website, because it might be a legitimate website. And they don't want you to go on that website to get the information that you need. Okay. So, um, <laughs> all right, guys, we have two minutes. We talked about Barbados, did we? Yes. Guyana. 
what is the political economy of Guyana? Guyana, we stop here. Guyana's economy is based on agriculture, particularly sugar and rice. Um, and at one time, and although one time, I think we were exporting um, sugar to Guyana because they, and, and a lot of Caribbean islands were struggling to meet international demand at one time as well. They were struggling to meet international demand on rice, and so they had to import. So a lot of islands would export, but then they'll turn around and import. I don't know what kind of policy that is, um, where they have to import all these products that they are already exporting. And because they are, because of an inability to meet their um, export quotas, they now have to import to meet that. Jamaica had that problem, Guyana had that problem once which is something that government had to address, which stems from their, their lack of capital-intensive technology, which that is something that they would have to now invest in, and they have to work together as Caribbean islands to invest in their local, in their countries, so that they can maximize on the earnings that they will stand to gain if they were capital-intensive. Okay, you can't, and I said to you, you can't just focus on the first stages of production. You have to develop your economy so that you can do the finish and you can do large-scale things. By the way, so the socio-political economy of Guyana is that they're based on agriculture, particularly sugar and rice, mining, gold and, gold and bauxite, and recently oil production. Oil production. Um, it faces challenges such as ethnic tensions and political instability. Before the end of this course, this semester, I'm going to read an article or share an article with you entitled um, Challenges to Caribbean Development or Solutions to Caribbean Development. Is Guyana's oil the answer? Is Guyana's oil the answer? They find, okay, so now they have all these deposits of oil in Guyana. And many people are now rushing to Guyana to, to invest in their in, into their oil production and so on. And I said, is this the answer? And I said, Guyana has had oil. They have had bauxite, sugar, rice, but they are among the poorest in the Caribbean. Okay? That has not helped the country. Same thing with Trinidad. Trinidad sh could have, should have been doing much better. Same thing with Jamaica. The 1950s, we had bauxite. That's not helping us. Okay? We still have bauxite. It's not helping us. So... So that's one of the things you have to consider. Um, religions of the religion of Guyana. Guyana is religiously diverse, with Hinduism, Christianity, and Islam being the major religions, alongside smaller communities practicing Afro-Caribbean religions. In terms of the demographics, the population the population is, eth is ethnically diverse, with significant Indo-Guyanese, Afro-Guyanese, and American populations. Um, one of the things that we never talked about when I did Domin Dominican Republic, and later on I'll talk about, I'm going to help, the, the beginning of next class, I'm going to have you watch a video, or if you go to my YouTube channel, and um, I added it as an external resource for you guys to read, um, to watch in Caribbean Thought Semester 2 2024, or Pan-African and Caribbean Thought. There's a video I just added, and it's at the bottom of the list, playlist, that talks about Car that continued the conversation looking at Caribbean peoples before the African peoples came. 
which tells which is which is a little which 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 is a little bit more telling than the one that I had shared with you guys the previous week. So you, um, I was going to share that with you guys today, but I don't have time. But you guys can watch it; it's quite interesting. And then one of the I like to read comments. So when you look at the video, also read the comments. I also I comments. I stick a com I stuck a comment. So added a comment there. But there are some other comments. Read the comments because people from Guyana and all over the Caribbean talked about it. And one Guyanese man, that Dominican with Dia man, said, "Oh, there's a large Taino people." The Taino people have remained in Dominican Republic. So in some parts of the Caribbean, there are traces and there's evidence of the Amer uh, American Indian population that that existed um, even after slavery and that continues today. In DR, they have that, but also in Guyana. In Guyana, the population is diverse with significant Indian Guyanese people, African Guyanese people, and Ameri uh, Ameri American Indian populations, the Taino people. So a lot of them were there, um, some of the Taino people, so on and so forth. Um, where am I? Sorry about that. The current position is that of, of Guyana. Where am I? Um, the socio-political economy. Sorry, the history. Where am I? I'm so sorry about that. Guyana. Um, the history... Um, Guyana gained independence from Britain in 1966, and Alisa had asked me something about the assassination of Walter Rodney. If I had gotten into my lecture for today, which was supposed to be a, the second part, which was supposed to be looking at Garveyism or the limitations of Garveyism and black nationalism, and I had started talking about nationalism, but I wanted to quickly really look at delving into the Caribbean islands and then go back to nationalism. But I'm going to go back to nationalism because I want to talk about Guyana and Walter Rodney. But in the meantime, Guyana gained, in, they gained independence from Britain in 1966. Going to talk, we're going to talk about Barbados and how the other Caribbean islands had prevented Walter Rodney from coming there. But we will talk about that later on. But Guyana gained independence from Britain in 1966. It has a complex history. So Jamaica is one of the first among the West Indian islands to get independence, okay? But um, Guyana had gained independence in 1966. It has a complex history of ethnic tensions. Ethnic, just like India, uh, we said Trinidad had a complex history as well of ethnic tensions, not as pronounced as the one in Guyana particularly between the Indo-Guyanese and Afro-Guyanese communities. That also helped to define Trinidad a little bit, okay, but more so in Guyana. Now, Walter Rodney is a prominent figure in, in, um, in Guyana's history. And Walter Rodney was a Guyanese historian, political activist, a scholar. And his most notable work was How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, examines the impact of European colonization um, the impact of European colonization. Now, uh, there's more on Walter Rodney, but I don't want. And today, we're not. We want to get. We won't get into Walter Rodney. Okay. Um, I think not next week. Not not the next class, but after the next class nine, we will talk about Walter Rodney, and the struggle for Guyana's independence, and we'll also delve. And then I don't know if we can get me. Maybe I'll have a guest. I can if I want, but I have so many things I want to share, but I'd probably get somebody to talk about Haiti and I guess to talk 
um, I mean, and I guess to talk about um, Guyana. That's about it for class today, guys. Thank you so much. We, we will pick up next week. There is no class. Um, so I want you guys to do uh, an assignment, which I will send out in an email in lieu of us missing or skipping next week. So we, we will meet week after next. I will give you an assignment to conduct, which is simple and easy. It will, it's a, it's a, you will have to, you will ask some questions of 10 people in your community or in your churches or wherever, um, of, or of Caribbean diaspora, ask them some questions. Um, and I wrote it down. Um, this, we're wrapping up now, actually, but this is the question you will ask. Um, what was your attitude towards Afro-Caribbean beliefs? And you will, um, what was, what is your attitude towards Afro-Caribbean beliefs? Positive, negative, um, both positive and negative, neutral, undecided. And then you will ask, what was it, um, has it changed? Yes or no? Why has it changed? Why or why not? Why, why has it, why did it, why has it changed? Why has it not changed? And then you can, and we will say, and we will give them the option X, Y, Z. Um, and then, or other, they, they can say why it hasn't changed. And then, um, and of course, we will ask some demographics questions in terms of their location, their education, the, their denomination, their culture, age, occupation. Um, and that's it. Just a, a soft questionnaire for you guys to do. And then you guys can come to class and present your findings in terms of people's attitudes towards Afro-Caribbean beliefs in your locales or wherever you live, in your communities or whatever. You just give it out to just or people in your family or friends, 10 people, just 10, including yourselves. And in fact, if you go to my YouTube channel, uh, I think there is a questionnaire that a soft questionnaire on my YouTube channel that is available. Or if you go to the podcast, Spotify, the community channel or to my YouTube page, the community page, this same questionnaire is available and you can ask, you can participate in it for yourselves. But I'm going to prepare the questionnaire for you, send it out to you, and you can duplicate it and give it to people, to just 10 people, and tell me what your finding is. I'll have it available to you by the weekend, by Sunday, and then you can circulate it. All right? Um, that's about it, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, when we come back, we will pick up from we talk about Martinique, Cayman, Belize, Grenada, Puerto Rico, and then we'll start talking about, we'll start... And then we will continue um, looking at um, the limitations of black nationalism. Um, we won't delve into Fidel Castro, Maurice Bishop, Edward Siago, Basley of Pandy, Jean Bertrand, Aristide. We won't look at them yet, okay, until we have exhausted these islands and then go into the limitations of Garveyism and black nationalism, made, making a comparison between between George Padmore's nationalism and Gavi nationalism, okay? All right, guys, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy your holidays, and I pray that God will continue to keep you. Hopefully, maybe by the next time you come, I will have a major announcement that book two of neoliberalism is published, okay? Take care and work good. Any questions, by the way? Any questions? All right, so we wrap up here. Take care, guys. Okay. Well, oh, and by the way, if this if this 
particular material is not available, let me know if you don't have a copy of it. I think it's on the JTS Moodle website, but if not, let me know. I'll upload it to the website so you guys can have access to it. All right, well, take care. I will stop share the screen now and I'll end. Take care, guys. I can't find... Actually, okay. I can't find it. Stop. Stop share. Take care, guys. Walk good.